0: And if you get a chance, you should ask this question. Have you done your homework? Have you done the math? And tell me how much land will be needed if I want to supply all of the plastics. And that is the answer to that.
1: Imagine a world in which our global plastic production would not be based on fossil fuels, but renewable resources. A world in which we would still enjoy the convenience of plastic, but it would be marine degradable within 5 to 10 years. A short blip of time compared to our conventional plastic. Imagine a world in which our products would leave no traces of microplastics, would be kinder to our planet, our animals and also kinder to our own health. What if that future would be possible? Yes, doable. And what would it take? This is a deep dive interview and extremely insightful. Seriously, if you don't listen to any of the interviews in this season, please listen to this one. <laughs> we do get into some technical details, so it helps if you know the terms compostable, biodegradable, bio-based and PLA. You can get an introduction to the topic in our episode 2.2, or alternatively, your search engine of your choice will work as well. Dr. Ramani Nairan is a distinguished professor at the Michigan State University, renowned for their education on packaging. He has 80 refereed publications in leading journals, 14 patents, and has edited three books. Ramani serves as the scientific chair of the Biodegradable Products Institute in North America. We are both advisors to the Global Compostables Alliance. GCA seeks to unite compostable packaging producers. If you work in a field or you know someone working on compostable products, definitely check it out at gcaimpacts.org. They're sincerely committed to pushing sustainability and packaging forward, and you can get involved, for example, as a member at gcaimpacts.org. I must say this talk with uh, Ramani has been absolutely fascinating. So let's jump right in. You're listening to Season 2 on plastic alternatives. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. For resources and to get involved, visit redtogreen.solutions. And I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Ramani, it's lovely to have you on the Red to Green podcast.
0: Thank you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be there, and I look forward to our conversation.
1: In a talk that we had before, you said that for you, it's relatively clear how plastic usage or packaging use needs to change and that this is also in line with science. So how's
0: that? Yeah, so a couple of uh, points I want to bring out here. So bear with me. Plastics is identified as a monolithic one molecule or one product plastics you see the film you carry bag everything is plastic but it is not the plastic which is the problem it is the problem of the molecule the polyethylene the polypropylene the pla all these words have been used in your podcast before how does that molecule fit in the end of life scenario The fact that they are plastic simply means that you can easily process them and make it into a film or mold it into a product. But this is the process of making a product that is the lowest energy, that is easy to manufacture from a cost perspective, is lightweight and provides you all the barrier performances you want. What you use to make that plastic, that's where the question should be. And that's where I think people don't focus on. It's plastics is good, plastics is bad. My submission to your listeners would be, it's not the plastics, it's the molecule, the the, the chemical, the polymer, that you use to make the plastics that makes it good or bad. And it is the end of life as to what is done with that after use and how it is treated at the end of life decides whether that is good or bad, right? And that is where it should be and not the way discussions are going on. But, you know, that is one person talking about this against so many. And hopefully people listening to your Podcast will think about that. What is plastics, right? So that's one. The second part, which would be good to get in, in addition to this, and I'm just trying to make sure I have my numbers correct. 300, if i mistake mistaken, 359 million tons of plastics used in 2019, right? And here's another statistic. Almost 40% of that 359 million tons is used in packaging, packaging goods, packaging this, packaging that. And rightly so, this comes under uh, the most scrutiny and most problem because it is this packaging plastic, single-use, disposable, which gets leaked to the environment and is not treated correctly, right? So my earlier discussion, plastics is bad. It's we're using it too freely, and there is some truth to that. We overuse packaging, and we engineer it not for the use, but to make it the best that it can last forever. This is the packaging engineer's thought process, which is changing in the education like in the School of Packaging. We're saying, no, don't design the packaging to be the most the, the strongest, the best barrier. Uh, it will never break, but to something that will be usable and at the end of life can be uh, recycled or cycled back either by composting or by reuse or by recycle. These are words everybody understands. So change the design in the front end so that it fits into the end of life, right? That has never been taught before. It's always been make it the cheapest, the best, and the better properties, the better it is. So that needs to change, and that's what is changing. And that's something which the people entering into the packaging industry, or those who are entrepreneurs, and those who are even well-established companies are trying to understand and do.
1: To build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and valuable connections check out our partner atlantic food labs an early stage investor and venture studio for startups founded in 2016 the berlin-based investor is one of europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture investing in exciting topics such as alternative proteins water supply vertical farming solutions for food waste and carbon reduction Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way, Atlantic Food Labs has supported over 20 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Legendary, the cultured milk startup, featured in our episode four, making real cheese without cows. Mushlabs making meat alternatives from fungi and gorillas designing the future of grocery shopping. And now back to today's episode.
0: So that leads me to the big question. The current 144 million tons, which we use in packaging is based on a molecule That is what I call carbon-carbon backbone polymer. Polymer is a string of small units linked together. And this is a carbon-carbon backbone polymer, you know, all plastics. Life itself is carbon-centric. You know, we are carbon units. Everything is carbon-based. These are the polyethylenes, these polypropylenes made by the refineries in a big way. And I pose this question that those carbon-carbon backbone polymers are not that easy to break down, depolymerize to monomers and repolymerize. So in other words, to circulate it by taking that and then breaking it down back into that original monomer, the starting molecule, and then repolymerizing back to give me my polyethylene, that's not doable, because remember our first theory was make it as strong as we can that nothing can break it. That's what we targeted. So the current carbon-carbon backbone polymers offer all the requirements we need today, but it's also very difficult to cut down into small pieces, and therefore the recycling has got to be specialized for it. This will be challenged, of course, by people who make polyethylene and polypropylene plastics. And especially in that single-use packaging where it is difficult to recover or from the waste stream, this becomes problematic, right? So I want to focus on the fact that your current polymer molecules that is used in plastics is not that readily usable in an end-of-life situation or scenario and pose the question, can you change that molecule, which still behaves like a plastics and gives us all the performance and protection requirements we want, but at the end of life, I can just chop it down and recycle it. And today, there are some discussions, compostable plastics is one such approach. It is not that compostable plastics is out of this world or some way out concept, it is simply, Change to a different molecule, different backbone, so that it can either break down and be assimilated by microorganisms in compost, or can be broken down to its original constituents and repolymerized back. PET, for example, be used in bottles and other applications and is used extensively, is considered highly recyclable, and. We talk about chemical recycling. Not getting into the buzzwords. It simply means that can I take PET molecule and take it back to its original constituents and then put it back in and make my PET But if I take carbon-carbon backbone polymers, that's not doable and it's not easy. There are people who challenge that and said, "No, no, we can do it. Uh, it's doable." And I always say the proof is in the pudding, right? Mm -hmm. As an American president once said, trust, but verify. So Mm -hmm. if they can verify and show that I can go back, do it. I I just want to put the concepts and not challenge what is doable, what's not doable. So saying that you can change that molecule so that it is still a plastic, but at the end of life can be dismantled and re-polymerized or composted, offers a viable solution and should be practiced, right? But the third thing which I bring out always is that, and this is directly related to food and food products, right? I don't know about Europe, but in the U.S., about almost 90% of food waste goes to landfills, in the emerging economy, in the developing world, Asia and continents there, they are dumped over as just dumped out, right? So in landfills or as uh, dumped, the environment is not managed. It is what we call anaerobic. So it will generate methane, which, as I'm sure all of your listeners will know, is has a 25x global warming potential impact, correct? So, therefore, food waste needs to be handled correctly than what we are doing today. It's, of course, I'm sure there are people in your podcast who address the fact that we are wasting too much food. We must make sure it is not wasted. It is collected. It is recycled in some form, fashion, right? I and mean, that is number one. That's the highest hierarchy. But we still will have a lot of food waste all over the world. And you may have the numbers and it's an interesting discussion as to how much really is wasted. But that waste or whatever way you want to call it, should not be sent to a landfill and generate more problems in terms of methane. Or it should not be sent to uh, a dump and allowed to break down. 50%, and this is a number anybody can check, 50% of the municipal solid waste, 50% plus, in any country in the world, is organic biodegradable waste. That includes paper, food, wood, yard trimmings, all of those things, 50%. And that's going into a landfill or just being dumped, which generates methane. So clearly, they should not be sent to a landfill. They should not be burnt, because that means you have to burn 50% of that food and other things contain water, which is simply burning. It must be composted. So when people talk about composting and its emergence and evolution, it has to happen to handle this 50% waste which we are handling the wrong way. And you're seeing this. So in India, for example, there's a lot of composting facilities, industrial or micro composting facilities. China is talking about, this needs to happen. This is generic, right? Directly tied to your food industry. What do you do with food? And how do you manage food so that you're not creating environmental impacts? Composting is one way. Anaerobic digestion, take energy. That's another way. I, I am not aware of anything better than these two. Burning it doesn't, to me, make any sense. I don't believe it can make sense. If that is accepted, then plastics, doesn't have to be plastic, paper, anything which is used for packaging that food, protecting the food which you produce, you sell, you transport, should be compostable, right? And The molecule still is a plastic, but it must have linkages that will behave like the food and paper and waste in the compost and be completely removed and follow the correct protocols there. In the plastics world, if I give you this link, all the discussions in your earlier podcasts for recycling, I'm sure this has come up and I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on that. We focus that plastics should be recycled. And there are LCAs, you know, the life cycle assessment and the practitioners tell you that the best end of life for plastics is recycling. I don't even question that. They're absolutely right. Provided you can recover that plastic safely, effectively, and put it in a process, right? So you do an LCA and show plastic is great because I can recycle it. We knew that 40 years ago. Mm. Did that change anything? No. And especially in this packaging area where it is related to food and paper combinations and all, thin plastic film, like a confectionery packaging or uh, food wraps or anything, how are you going to recover it from that food waste and paper waste? And then how do you clean it? How do you wash it? How do you transfer it? But the LCA doesn't go into that part of that recovery recycle, and therefore recycling for those products doesn't make sense. But if you have a PET bottle, a milk jug, which you can effectively recover, collect, then yes, recycling makes sense. That changing the molecule itself, which is the concept of compostable plastics, is essential to integrate it with the waste management of food, paper, and other things. And that's where these three things put together. This is the missing link, that we need to not treat plastics as plastic separately, especially when you're talking about total solutions, circularity and all, but where is it found? With what is it associated with? And what is the best option to change the molecule, to be able to treat it along with the food, particularly for food packaging, food engineers or food products manufacturers, they should keep this in mind.
1: Yes, I feel it's very often forgotten how much energy is needed to uh, clean the plastic, sort it, to do mechanical or even chemical treatment, and then do that cycle over and over again. And how often are you actually realistically going to go through this recycling process yes. Oh, absolutely. So let's look at the front end of what you were talking about. So where the feedstock is coming from. And it's quite fascinating that sometimes there are actually compostable petroleum-based solutions like uh, TIPA, but they are also the bio-based options should we try to derive as much of our plastics from renewable sources? And there's one follow-up question I have that one of our earlier interview guests said, the issue with bio-based plastics is that they will take up land. And how much land is that? Because, like, how big is that problem? Will it be necessary to plaster as much land as we do with animal agriculture? Probably not, right?
0: Yes. I, I, I think I will answer that second part definitely first. <laughs> but, but let's, you, you put it correctly, and I always present it that way, that is the beginning of life. That means what feedstocks will you use to make your product, right? That's the beginning of life. And the end of life is what happens to the product after use when it goes into the waste. And the choice you have is, do I use petroleum feedstocks or plant biomass feedstocks to make my molecule? The molecule is still the same, right? It is a polymer molecule, whether it has got carbon, carbon, carbon S, whatever is the structure of it. That structure is not going to change irrespective of whether it came from petroleum or from, you can do it from both sources. And the question you're asking is, is it better to do it with plant rather than with fossil? And there are value problems, CO2 and so on and so forth. And there's there's a big uh, push to it. The one point I do want to stress is that bio-based or using plant biomass resources does not automatically confer a viable end-of-life solution. In other words, it's not biodegradable, it's not compostable, it's not necessarily recyclable, okay? You still need to establish that. So bio-based is a value attribute to reduce your carbon footprint, to support rural agrarian economies, and it's part of the biological carbon cycle. So that's the value, right? But you can take that value and make it terrible by making a molecule which is not going to be compostable, which is not going to be biodegradable, mm. which is not going to be recyclable. And you can't even recover it from the waste stream. That, you know, it, It's of no value. So they go hand in hand, but unfortunately we are not talking it that so that's one comment which is very important. In my opinion, the switch from petrol fossil feedstocks to plant biomass feedstocks is important from a global CO2 reduction because that's how nature cycles carbon in terms of time frames and all. And I won't not go into detail on that yet. And that it is going to be good for rural agrarian economies, and it's and it is more spread out, right? Because plants and biomass is grown everywhere in the world, oil and petroleum in regions of the world. So you will, in a way, deregulate the whole chokehold of oil in in the world of economics, right? So so it is a good thing to do it. The question which you asked is very interesting, and I definitely want to answer it is, whenever this issue of plant biomass or agricultural feedstocks comes up, the red flag is raised exactly like you said, people are going to go hungry, there is no land, or because you're going to grow, the farmers are going to pollute, all of that stuff, right? And I'm going to tell you that this is absolutely a myth in terms of how you look at it. If you consider just materials, right? Not fuel. So if I say I want to make biofuel from plant resources, as opposed to I want to make from petroleum resources, that's a separate debate. Unfortunately, they're linked together. So everything depends on on where you put your boundary conditions to discuss. So the first point I want to make is that a material supplying refinery doesn't have to produce fuel. It can supply food and bio-based feedstock, monomers and polymers and materials, okay? Not fuel. If you accept that, and there are many big agribusiness, ADM, all of them do this. They make food products. And they also make industrial products like starches for the adhesive industry. For the food industry, they produce this uh, thickeners and viscosifiers and all of those things. They all come from the same uh, base, right? They don't make fuel. Little change, they, because they see value, they are making ethanol and then the biofuels and all come into play. They don't have to. So if you m- make the biorefinery purely a materials related, food materials, packaging materials, product materials, then I'm saying that all these discussions we are having about food shortage and pollution and all that is moot. And I'll explain to you why. We talked about the fact that 359 million metric tons of plastics has been used in the world last year, or even this year, maybe a little bit more. and I'll ask all your uh, listeners to make this calculation. It's simple arithmetic. If I converted all of the 359 million metric tons to be produced from PLA based on corn, make that assumption, everything, which is mind boggling, but will not happen. But let's take that assumption. And then you ask the question, how much corn would I need and how much land would I need to provide this 359 metric tons? And it turns out it requires less than 5% of the arable land in the world today, less than 5%. Okay? And if you consider pasture land and other, it will get to 0.1% to convert everything. So the impact of this is non-existing, right? But if you say, I want to convert 50% of the fuel, transportation fuel used today to biofuel, then yes, this will be a problem. But that world is changing. We are talking about electric vehicles. Even fuel is going to change away. Why are we concerned with fuel? So if I am a food company, doesn't it make sense for me to make the food from the plant biomass resources? And the packaging from it, Mm. either from the waste or even from that, because the land use is not going to change because you added an extra packaging into it. I gave you the; they can calculate it. One bushel of corn gives you forty pounds of starch. uh, Forty pounds of starch gives you how much PLA? Therefore, if I need three hundred fifty-nine million metric tons of PLA, how much corn I need? And it's just minuscule to the value. Today in the U.S., we pay farmers, or farmers don't grow that much corn because the market is getting oversupplied, right? So they can't sell it, the price goes down. So this problem is brought out every time this discussion comes. And if you get a chance, you should ask this question. Have you done your homework? Have you done the math? And tell me how much of land will be needed if I want to supply all of the plastics. And that is the answer to that. So food production and food is not going to interfere. In fact, to the food industry, I would say this will let you source your feedstock and your food ingredients in the region of where you want. You don't have to take a polyethylene, produced in a refinery in the U.S. and ship it there. You can do it all there. And you have a control over what feedstock. You can look at the sustainability of the farm. You can tie it all together. It's a great opportunity, at least in my opinion, on the food industry, since you're so closely tied to that, to make sure that the packaging and the associated products is associated with that food-related production. And you know, and you make integrate it it should have no impact whatsoever.
1: Hmm. Then, <laughs> i'm I'm very happy about that <laughs> because if we wouldn't have gotten that answer from you, I would have actually researched it myself
0: <laughs> really i I, uh, I will remind myself to send you this calculation, one bushel of corn, how much, and that's for your reference and should somebody in your listening base, or when you ask this question to others and they, or when anybody brings out the issue about LCA and food and making the people go hungry, you will have these numbers to to show and ask them their response, because I'm very interested in this response.
1: This interview was filled with so many good insights, and it would be a pity to cut them out. So we will release the second half of the episode next week. I would love to hear from you, connect and see if there's any way to support you. Reach out to me on LinkedIn at Marina Schmidt, Marina Schmidt with DT. If you like Red to Green, remember to subscribe and share it with your colleagues or friends who could be interested. To volunteer in industry research, marketing or writing articles, check out redtogreen.solutions. There you will also find resources mentioned in the episodes. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.